Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29, is the center letter of the seven letters to the seven churches, the letter to the church at Thyatira. And this is a study of the book of Revelation. I know it seems like now it's become a study of the letter to the church at Thyatira, but I do plan to finish it up today. And I do uh, invite you that there's much more information I'll get posted uh, after today, these notes. Um, if you want to more, know more detail about this letter, I'll, I'll post the notes on the uh, website. But let's just jump right in. We've already looked at the first few verses of this letter, but, and so we'll pick up at verse 24, but I want to start with verse 18, and we read as we read the letter in its entirety. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bond servants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know, here's that center statement, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So now... Just as a way of a flash review here, we are at the letter um, to the church at Thyatira, which I've entitled, True to the Faith, But Tolerating Sin. Because remember, I believe this is a letter of extremes, extremely faithful and loyal in their love, service, deeds, and uh, even perseverance, and that those deeds are growing in grace. So it's, a, it's an example of a great church in great commendation, but it's also an example of a corrupt church. And its corruption comes from tolerance, being a tolerant church. They tolerate the woman Jezebel and her teaching. And so we studied that before. So, um, and of course, there's a map of the churches, the seven churches of Revelation. And uh, we've already looked at the uh, different components the church and the city. There's the photographs of ancient Thyatira, 
And we mentioned that Thyatira is also the home of Lydia, the um, lady that was identified as a seller of purple garments, which was an industry that was prevalent in the city of Thyatira, dyeing of wool and fabrics. And that came from the seashell and from this matter root plant. And then we looked at the introduction of how Christ described himself. And again, important to today's lesson is this description, the son of God comes out of um, Psalm chapter two. And uh, we'll be dealing with Psalm chapter two again. Um, and so we talked about judgment, uh, Christ all-knowing omniscience about the good things. And I've just mentioned those, the good characteristics of the church and then the criticism, I have this against you. And we looked at that in detail, taking each word at a time, the contrast, the fact that it was within the church, not without, and that it's of tolerance. Their sin was one of tolerance, being amenable to overlook what was obvious sin in their church. And then we looked at the issues related to Jezebel, even from the Old Testament, the consequences of that sin, and then that brings us to today. Um, and I will start right here with verse 24. So, with that flash review, let's look at verse 24. All right, we've already talked about the three different categories of consequences of this sin, and that is Jezebel and those who commit adultery with her, secondly, and then thirdly, her children, verse 23. Now, a fourth category is here in verse 24. And look, it says, but I say to you, the rest, here's the fourth group of people, the rest who are in Thyatira. Who are these rest of the people who do not, <clears throat> excuse me, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them? I place no other burden on you. Okay, so who obviously is the rest. So who would that obviously, because you had Jezebel, those who committed adultery with her, spiritual adultery, and then you had those who were her children. So who is the rest? The true believers of Thyatira, because they what? And now, well, let me say it this way. They're the true and faithful believers, because I do think that some of those who followed Jezebel were true believers because it says, you lead astray my bondservants. So they were true believers too. So I don't mean to say that they were, but these were pure, they were undefiled. They did not hold to this teaching. They did not know the deep things of Satan. By the way, the deep things of Satan could either be a sarcastic comment because she was teaching the deep things of God. If you follow me, I'll take you into the deep things of God. And so it was a contrast of sarcasm calls it the deep things of Satan as they really are or it could be that she taught such a dualism of body and spirit from which the ancient doctrine of Gnosticism came that the spirit was good the body was evil so therefore whatever you did in the body didn't affect your spirit your spirit would remain pure therefore you could even dive into the deep things of Satan with your body and it wouldn't affect your spirit so either meaning, um, these people had not known those things. They had not practiced the immorality, the eating of things, sacrificed to idols. 
and they had remained pure. What does he say? He says, I place no other burden on you. What does that imply? They already had a burden. What was the burden that they had? Well, a lot of speculation about this, but I think possibly one that we should consider comes from Acts 15. <clears throat> Remember, this letter is written like in the end of the first century, about 96, 97 AD. The apostles in Jerusalem, about 50 years prior to that, met and they were discussing the issues among the Gentiles converting to Christianity. And in Acts 15, verse 19, they said, Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled from blood. This decree was put in a letter and it was circulated among the churches <clears throat> with Judas called Barsabbas and Silas who accompanied Paul and Barnabas. And then in Acts 15 verse 28, it says, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, this is the apostles again, to lay upon you no greater burden, same word used here, uh, the same root word for burden, no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you do well. So that's a very likely possibility that this burden that they already had was this additional command from the apostles that they abstain from eating things sacrificed to idols and that they keep themselves free from fornication related to idolatry or any kind of fornication, but particularly that, that if they did that, they did well. Another possibility about what this burden meant that Christ would not add to was that it was just being in the church. The church at Thyatira, if you were a pure and faithful believer in a church like that, think of the burden you already had. You already were pretty overloaded. But you see how it really could be a blending of those two. Because, you know, if you're under the burden of not eating things sacrificed to idols and abstaining from all forms of idolatry like that and the fornication that goes with it, you're already an outcast in that culture. You're already under a burden, so to speak, of shun and rejection by the culture there. So whichever, it's just uh, obvious that they're under a burden and mercifully, Christ doesn't add any other burden to him, even though he could. In justice, could Christ judge the faithful along with the unfaithful? Happens a lot, right? In, in, in a nation, do the faithful to Christ get judged with the unfaithful? In a church, can the faithful be judged along with the unfaithful, but yet Christ was merciful? Notice in verse 25, he says, Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. Hold fast until I come. Now, until I come, is that at the end of the age, his ultimate coming, or is that when he comes in judgment upon Jezebel and her followers? I think it's the latter because obviously there, is, there are consequences coming. He's already foretold that. And I think 
that he's referring to hold fast because judgment is coming. But now I want to get into the meat of this text, I think, for us today. It's very interesting. Verse 26 and 27 have the second to the last sentence of this letter. And it's a letter, I mean, it's a sentence of closing. But it contrasts with the introduction in verse 18. All right, let's notice the sentence. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end. All right, first of all, <clears throat> the promise to the overcomers is present in all seven letters. But for some reason, in this, the center letter and the three that follow it, the promise to the overcomers precedes the counsel to hear. And all the others, we see, he who has an ear, let him hear. And then it says, and to the overcomer, I promise this. Here we see the promise to the overcomer first, and then the statement, he who has an ear, let him hear. <clears throat> also different here is that the overcomer has a dual description. It is what? He who overcomes and he who what? Keeps my deeds until the end. Well, now remember, who is an overcomer? When we say that today, we immediately get to thinking of a mystical super-Christian, don't we? Like if I say, so-and-so is an overcomer. They're an overcomer in God. But yet, John, the writer of Revelation and the writer of the epistle, 1 John, has already clearly, which by the way, 1 John was written by John just a year or two prior to this in Ephesus before he was uh, exiled to Patmos. So certainly these churches would have had the letter circulated, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> with the definition from 1 John. Look at 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. I just want to remind you, I know we've mentioned this before, but I want to be sure we don't jump past it. It's very clear definition of what the word overcomer means. And by the way, the root word there is Nikon, that the camera brand gets their name from. Also, another form of the word is Nike, uh, victor. So an overcomer is a victor, an, a victorious overcomer. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. Here's the definition of overcoming or an overcomer. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Same root word. And this is the victory. Same form of the root word that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So what is the definition of an overcomer? Anything that's been born of God. And doesn't that make sense? Because who is the source of all power, all strength, all victory, all life comes from God. So anything, anybody born of God is a victor, an overcomer. But what's the means of the overcoming? How does that overcoming life and power flow to us? It follows immediately our faith. But what kind of faith? Our faith in who or what? That's answered 
immediately, faith that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So when we hear overcomer, we automatically want to think of a super Christian, but yet, who's overcomers? We are overcomers. We are all overcomers. And a lot of people may teach that there's a second level of Christianity, but there's just being in sin and there's not being in sin, you know? And we get in and out of that through repentance. But there's, so here, here's a way to say it. We might think that they're average Christians and overcoming Christians, but if you're born of God, there's no such thing as average, right? Being born of God, we are not average. And the reason why we're not average is not because of what we've done, but because of what God has done in us. He has, born, he has brought us to be born again. So any person who has truly entrusted their life to Christ, who truly believes he is the Son of God and has received that truth in their mind, their emotions, and their will, most importantly, that person is an overcomer. But notice here, there's a second description. He who keeps my deeds. He who keeps my deeds. So you've got overcoming, which is defined by being in faith, in faith in Jesus Christ. And now he's saying, and he who keeps my deeds or works, same root for works or deeds, erga, that we get energy from. So who is an overcomer or who are these promises that follow promise to? One who is an overcomer by faith and one who keeps my deeds. All right, now, is this a contradiction? Because first of all, the overcoming to whom the promises are granted is defined as one who has faith in Jesus being the son of God. Now it's saying, and one who does works. So is that a contradiction? Is it by faith or is it by works? Is there a contradiction in the scriptures about faith and works? And of course, this is a rhetorical question, but is there a contradiction between Paul in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, you know, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, but the gift of God. And then James in James 2, 17, where it says faith without works is dead. So is that a contradiction? And so how is that reconciled? And I think it's significant too, the, the modifier, my works. Because whose works are we doing? We're not doing our works. And we don't, we're, we're not a promised overcomer because of the works we do, but because of the works God does through us. And those are in keeping, again, with the grace that flows through faith to us for salvation, also the grace to perform the works he's prepared beforehand, Ephesians 2.10, right after Ephesians 2.8.9, he's prepared works beforehand that we should walk in them. He has prepared the works. He will do the works if we're just obedient to receive them and to let him do them. And so it's still by grace through faith, but that faith produces works that faith results in works and without those works that faith is defined as dead and notice also the modifier until the end 
What kind of works? Works that persevere, works that endure, works that don't give up. This immediately makes you think of the fifth doctrine of grace called, what well, is called um, the uh, perseverance of the saints. But I always rather prefer to call it the preservation of the saints. Because when we hear the term perseverance of the saints, that makes us think, and by the way, for all of us Baptists, you know, we, we always heard once saved, always saved, that, that was a Baptist doctrine. Once saved, always saved came from the perseverance of the saints. That's what that means. But again, preservation of the saints makes it clear who's doing the, who's, who's preserving. God is preserving us. We're not persevering by gritting our teeth and persevering to the end. We persevere because God preserves. Anyway, I just think that's very encouraging to first realize these promises are to those who overcome. Those who overcome are those who have faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and those who do the works of Him until the end. What are the promises? So, before I leave that, because I want to be sure you take this away, if, you're, if you believe, truly believe Jesus is the Son of God and you, your faith has changed you by that belief, and he works in you such that you are preserved to the end. What are you? You're an overcomer. So leave today and live the rest of your days in light of the fact that you're an overcomer. Not for anything you've done, but what he's done in you. What are the promises to these people? To him, I will give authority um, well, first of all, before I get to that screen, let's just look at them. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. All right, so there's four promises. Authority over the nations, rule with a rod of iron over the nations, such that it breaks them into pieces, and authority as Christ received from the Father to us also and the morning star. Let me say right here from the beginning that I have been extremely blessed by the meditation devotions of Sam Storms. And I invite y'all to go online and look up meditations on Revelations 2 and 3 from the seven letters to the seven churches by Sam Storms. Very impactful and insightful meditations. But I have to say respectfully, and Sam Storms knows much more than I ever can, I don't understand why when he comes to these verses, he launched into a, a meditation entitled, Was Jesus an Millennialist?" And I know I'm about to get into deep waters here, but I can't go past this because of all the verses to pick to talk about being all millennial, I don't understand why I picked these. And the more I studied it, the more I got confused. So let's just take this. These are quotes from Psalm 2. So Psalm 2 says, 
But as for me, well, let me just pull it up on here. But as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. That is a direct reference to Revelation 2, 18 in the introduction. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. That's a revelation to verse 26. I mean, a reference to Revelation 2.26. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Revelation 2.27. <clears throat> so, I, Sam Storm sees this as an intermediate stage of a believer where that the millennium is now and that these promises are fulfilled now that the believers are, are, are given this authority now, either when they die in heaven, that they have this rule, this authority, and um, these promises, or now on the earth as some other amillennialists see it. But I just want to take these promises and ask you, how does this read? Verse 26, first promise. To him I will give authority over the nations. All right, do you know of a case currently where believers have authority over the nations? I mean, even if you say, well, it's from heaven, they're in heaven and they have authority over the nations. I just don't see it. Um, first of all, there are no nations, evil nations in heaven. So I don't see how it would apply there. And I don't see how the nations on the earth are being subjugated to the authority of believers now. If y'all disagree, tell me. Number two, even more specific, they have rule with a rod of iron. So they're, big, they're being given rule over these nations. And now the rule, the root for rule is poimain, which is the word we get pastor or shepherd from. The rest of the New Testament, this is interpreted tend or shepherd. In other words, a kind ruling. But here in Revelation, three times it's used, 227, 12, 5, and 1915. In each case, the context prevents taking it like a shepherd because it says rule as with a rod of iron. Is that a tender tending of the sheep? And it even says they're being smashed into pieces as earthenware pottery. In fact, the root word that's taken in the Hebrew in Psalm 2, where the quote comes from, means to devastate or to destroy. So the ruling is not one of just tending and guiding, like as in the Great Commission, but it's absolute rule, heavy-handed, iron rule, such that it destroys the evil nations. Again, I do not see that happening currently in any way. Authority, as he had received it from the Father, so will we have. As co-regents, we'll have the same kind of authority that Christ had from his Father. 
total, absolute authority over the evil nations. Again, I do not see that. I don't see how you get that. Well, that's, you know, and that's my point, Chuck, is that he's seeing this as that the millennium is pictorial and symbolic and that it's now. And now, don't take me wrong, they have plenty of biblical support for their position. I just really am incredulous that you would take these to launch into that. And that's what I'm amazed at. I would pick better ammunition because what does this sound like? To me, it sounds like um, a coming kingdom, a coming king, and coming rulers. And I believe specifically and physically here on earth. I, let's just walk through it. You, I've got the scriptures up here because this this will be a rush. So, and again, you can get them off the web if you miss them. But what first did Jesus say about this coming kingdom, this coming king and the co-regents who would rule with him? What did he say? In the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, verse 5, Jesus said he's defining what it means to be a believer, a true believer. He says, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit what? The earth. That does not mean, as Jerry Clower likes to tell it, that you get a mouthful of dirt. <laughs> that, that means that you shall inherit the earth. You will be a ruler over the earth. Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That's a promise to who? His disciples, that they would be judges on their own thrones with him. Matthew 25, verse 31, Jesus is talking about when he comes in his glory, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd... There's that figure again, separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those sheep, the sheep on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. All right, that's what Jesus taught. Old Testament references. This is where we really need more time, but just look at Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, in verse one, it talks about that a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and strength, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor will he make a decision by what his ears hear. Now, doesn't that take you back to Revelation 2.18? He has eyes like a flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze, in pure judgment. But with righteousness he will judge the poor 
and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. <clears throat> now look about uh, in verse 6, the description of this kingdom. What's going on there? The wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Verse 10, then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1, well, start in verse 2. It says, in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and it will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Almost identical wording in Micah chapter 4. Um, we'll skip that. But at the end of Michael chapter 4, verse 8, it says, And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. As for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you, Zion, it will come. Even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter 8 talks about in those days, it'd be a 10 to 1 ratio of Gentiles grabbing at the Jews for mercy and for judgment and for wisdom. Isaiah 65, we won't read, but again, it talks about a physical kingdom centered in Jerusalem, where again, at the end, the wolf and the lamb graze together and the lion eat straw like the ox. But to sum up Zechariah 14, Zechariah 14 verse 9 says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. New Testament references. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12 says, If we endure, we will reign with him also. If we endure, we will also reign with him. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you know the passage where it talks about how Christians shouldn't sue each other? Well, in that passage, there's a little overlooked phrase that says, 1 Corinthians 6, 2, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? The saints will judge the earth. Jude, in verse 14, says, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all. And then, of course, Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of the God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, 
and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who is a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So I'm sorry for the rush, but just hearing the scriptures, what do y'all think? I mean, I guess it all could be symbolic, but to me it sounds like a literal kingdom with a literal king reigning on earth with his co-regents, us, the overcoming believers, reigning with him. Any comments? Anyway, I just, if you wonder why I launched into that diatribe, Sam Storms got me stirred up. So, <laughs> but at least you know where I stand on those verses. So anyway, but what about the fourth promise? We can't, we can't leave without talking about this. Well, by the way, what's the, you say, well, what's the life application? All right, Aaron, I see, so you're premillennial. You see this millennium as a literal thousand-year reign. Okay, what does that mean? What does that mean for me today? Well, that means that you are going to rule and reign with Christ. You're an overcomer. You're a co-regent with Christ. You have been given authority, and it shall be fulfilled as it is with him from the Father. So don't you think we ought to start living like it now? That's the way it impacted me as I got to thinking, wow, we're going to rule and reign on thrones with Christ, the same as he is on a throne with God the Father, we better change the way we live and the way we act. The morning star, the last promise of the four. Remember, they're promised they will have authority over the nations, they'll rule them with a rod of iron such that they smash them, and they will have authority even as Christ received it from the Father in like manner, it will be given to us. Fourthly, the morning star. What is the morning star? We don't have time to get into all the theories. Some people think it refers to Venus because Venus was a symbol of sovereignty and rule in the Roman Empire, in the Babylonian Empire, and obviously it's a morning star that rises and we see it. That seems almost idolatrous, and I don't think Christ would be referring to that. In the Old Testament, there is um, a reference to the morning star or to a uh, star rising coming forth from Jacob, a scepter rising from Israel in Numbers 14. Many scholars, MacArthur being one of them, say what it refers to simply Revelation 22:16. In Revelation 22:16, Jesus says, I am the root and the descendant of David, Psalm 2, context again, the bright morning star. Jesus says, I am the bright morning star. All right, well here again, I go with fear and trembling when I dare to disagree with MacArthur here, but 
think about this. Could he be the bright morning star and we are a lesser morning star? Because what's the context? The context is us ruling and reigning with him as co-regents. Listen to these verses. They're on the screen. Daniel 12. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. See where I'm going? Job 38. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Malachi 4.2. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Could this be a promise of a glorious revealing of the saints in glory as stars of righteousness? You see what I'm saying? Like just as Christ is the bright, by no means are we the bright morning star as Christ. But if he glorifies us in that glorified state of regency, of reigning with him, might we be as morning stars, brilliant in righteousness to rule in judgment over the nations? Think all these promises, you know, just think about the promises given to the seven, in the seven letters. In every letter of the seven, there's a promise to an overcomer. They are, eat of the tree of life in paradise, will not be hurt by the second death, the hidden manna, a white stone, a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Here, authority over the nations, rule with a rod of iron, authority as I have received from the Father and the morning star. Clothed in white garments, I will not erase his name from the book of life and I will confess his name before my Father and his angels. A pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of God granted to sit down with me on the throne. Do those promises sound like something we get now or something that's coming? So with those promises, particularly the four we've studied today, how then should we live? And I'm sorry this lesson has been quite technical and covered a lot of stuff. So I wanna be sure we don't leave here without contemplating how should we live? If we are overcomers, if we are those who do the deeds of Christ, then we've been promised these things. And then how then should we live? Is it convicting? I mean, I tell you, when I was studying this, what I kept thinking about over and over is the command in 2 Corinthians, test yourself, examine yourself to see whether you be in the faith. Because I think if I'm born again of God, I have the spirit of God, I am an overcomer, I should do the works of Christ and I should expectantly, excitedly, in anticipation, look forward to these promises being made real. I confess to you, I don't live that way. I do not live that way. I do not think that way. And so I think the task for me and the task for any of the rest of you feel the same way is we need to repent 
of being defeated. We need to repent of living to ourselves and living to Christ. We need to repent of trusting in anything but Christ. We need to repent of doing deeds for ourselves and do, de do his deeds, which keeps to the end. In uh, John 6, didn't he, where he says, told the disciples, these are the works of Christ that you believe in the Son of God and, and him who sent me. So it is faith. Let Christ live in us such that he can do his works through us.